Hey, welcome back to Well That's Interesting, the If This Sounds Intense, That's Because It Fucking Is edition. <laughs> Today is episode 147, Man Falls Through Thunderstorm and Lives, and How to Survive the Dinosaur Age. Yeah, my friends, today is so fucking action-packed, I guarantee you'll experience whiplash, a concussion, and you'll find your jaw hitting the floor a few times in the process. In the first half of the show, I have the fucking honor of introducing the only human being who found themselves in not only one, but two nightmare scenarios and lived to tell the tale. One, the engine of the plane he was flying died out and he had to eject. Now that's terrifying in and of itself, but my friends, two, the plane crapped out coincidentally right above a cumulonimbus cloud a.k.a. the only clouds that produce thunder, lightning, and hail, a.k.a. a massive fucking thunderstorm. The moments which unfolded after abandoning his plane are that of legend, and we are going to literally ride that storm with him and experience a survival story literally unlike any other. Then after the break, if you think falling through a thunderstorm is just about the worst place you can find yourself, um, author Cody Cassidy just said hold my beer. My friends, after the break, it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Let's read from a book, motherfucker. And I have been gifted with another honor, that of introducing to you his latest, How to Survive History. Again, this is not a commercial, it's not a pitch, I just fucking love this book, and you will too. You needed it, like, yesterday, for real. And just like the title suggests, this book focuses on surviving historical catastrophes. <laughs> and a whole lot more dangerous, and I mean dangerous situations. Today, we're going to charge up the old time machine and dialing it way the fuck back to the age of the dinosaurs. And uh, we're going to answer the question, can we survive? My friends, the Earth was a very different place 70 million years ago, and let's just say it's so fucked up. An adult T-Rex is the least of your concern, and... Uh, I cannot wait to get into it with you. In the meantime, I'm Jill Chacha, and if this is your first time listening, welcome to The Flock, my delicate business goose. And to every other member of The Flock, congratulations. This is the third year of the show. We made it to three fucking years. <laughs> so give yourself a round of applause. It could not have happened without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Love you, love you, love you, thank you. Uh, here's to many more incredible episodes and I think it's just a wonderful coincidence that it falls on an episode like this <laughs> so Jesus Christ it's fucking crazy so we have so much to cover I think we should begin so join me will you on a hot summer's day back in an era I wouldn't want to visit either uh, it's the 1950s <laughs> it's July 26th 1959 to be exact and Lieutenant Colonel William Rankin just looked at his watch. It was fast approaching 6 p.m. Now, please, put a pin in that time. Uh, we're going to get back to that. But first, uh, a few fun facts about uh, Rankin. Uh, one, he's a U.S. Marine. Two, he fought in and survived World War II. Three, he then fought in and survived the fucking Korean War. And four, he's about to make history. My friends, it's imagination time. And I'd like you to picture Rankin 
and fellow Marine Herbert Nolan, each flying an F-8 Crusader. Now, what the fuck is that? Don't worry, I've got you. Think of a fighter jet. That's it. Just think of a fighter jet, and you pretty much got the idea. Um, I'll also have a photo of it over at our social media stuff, so come on by if you want to take a peek at an F-8. But honestly, it looks like any fighter jet that our American military industrial complex pumps out. Anyway, Rankin and Herbert were on their way from the Naval Air Station at South Weymouth, Massachusetts, which is a mouthful, to the Marine Corps Air Station in Beaufort, South Carolina. What the fuck is all that? Basically, it's just 800 miles apart by air. It's a short trip. By all accounts, this was supposed to be a routine high-altitude training run. However, the 39-year-old Rankin noticed more than just the time at this point in the flight. They were fast approaching a massive storm cloud, one easily towering over 45,000 feet. But the experienced pilot knew very well how to handle this situation. You get your ass above it. Now, a few fun facts about the cloud Rankin saw. Uh, it is tis no floof. Tis no floof like the cumulus cloud we all know and love. And you could probably eat. Yeah, you heard me. Check out episode 123. You can't drink soy sauce, but you can eat a whole cloud. Uh, if you haven't had a listen to that, please do. It's fucking delightful. Uh, and yes, you can eat a cloud. And I tell you how. But anyway, this was no cumulus my insignificant business goose, the cloud Rankin had his eyes on was a cumulonimbus cloud, which is a monster. And I'm sure many of us have seen it. And if you've seen them from a distance, you know the horrifying heft of these clouds. Quote, cumulonimbus clouds are the villains of the cloud world. <laughs> Characterized by towering columns of turbulent layers, these menacing formations of water vapor are the only ones known to produce thunder, lightning and hail, and they certainly look the part. While most clouds don't even reach 2,000 meters or 6,500 feet, cumulonimbus clouds climb up to 20,000 meters or 60,000 60, feet, I can't even say it, to create huge anvil shapes, end quote. So, my friends, 60,000 fucking feet. If you need more context, I got you. Head on over to this episode's Twitter or Instagram post, and there will be a graphic with our notorious cumulonimbus cloud just fucking towering over every other cloud to scale. It's just too big. It's too big. It's too big. Put it back. I can't. It's too big. And uh, in this particular case, Rankin and his buddy Herbert had to increase their altitude to 47,000 feet to avoid it. Luckily, South Carolina, their destination, was not too far off in the distance, and cruising at 600 miles per hour, yeah, surely they're, they're going to get there in no time, right? No, of course not. Not on this show. And not for our dear Rankin. This at this altitude, he felt what he described as a bump, followed by a rumble from the F-8's engine. And then, silence. The engine had stopped, and warning lights had begun flashing. Now, that's horrifying to me, but this was not Rankin's first rodeo. With a hundred battle missions and a bailout in enemy fire over Korea under his belt, he knew the procedure. One, communication. Rankin transmitted a brief, nearly unnaturally calm message to Herbert in this moment. Quote, power failure may have to eject. End quote. <laughs> That's it. Barely two sentences. 
Now, the operative word here was May. Uh, Rankin reached over to deploy auxiliary power for the aircraft. Uh, this is step two. And uh, you guessed it, the lever broke off in his hand. Mm-hmm. And that's when shit really hit the fan. Quote, as the unpowered aircraft began to heavily nosedive, Rankin considered other options. He knew that this extreme altitude presented several problems, such as frigid temperatures, severe decompression, and almost non-existent levels of oxygen. Even worse, Rankin wasn't wearing a pressure suit. End quote. From Anders Clark of DisciplesOfFlight.com. Now, my friends, despite being practically naked and vulnerable to the elements, Rankin decided to, quote, put his life in the hands of the ingenious engineers who had sweated for years to anticipate this problem. He pulled two overhead handles to trigger a fast sequence. One, a canvas windscreen came, came down over his face. Two, the plane's canopy blew off. Three, an explosive charge sent the seat and pilot into the thin, negative 58 degree Fahrenheit air, leaving Marine Rankin 40,000 feet up with only his jet helmet, oxygen mask, and his parachute, preset to open automatically at the safe breathing level of 10,000 feet. End quote. From the aptly named Time Magazine article, The Nightmare Fall. Yeah, and that nightmare fall began with the stinging pain of negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 50 degrees Celsius, that air attacking his left hand. For you see, when he was shot out of the plane... The force knocked off one of his goddamn gloves, exposing his flesh to the freezing temperatures. But again, that's just the start. Thanks to the altitude, the sudden decompression caused his abdomen to swell, and blood leaked from his eyes, nose, ears, and mouth. But don't take my word for it. Quote, I had a terrible feeling like my abdomen was bloated twice its size. My nose seemed to explode for 30 seconds, I thought the decompression had me, Rankin told Time Magazine. It was a shocking cold all over. My ankles and wrists began to burn as though somebody had put dry ice on my skin. My left hand went numb. I had lost a glove when I went out. It seemed like I free fell in eternity. All this time, I had this keen desire to pull the ripcord, and I had to keep telling myself, if you do, you'll slow down and freeze to death or die from a lack of oxygen. End quote. So, my friends, that was 30 seconds in, okay? And Rankin, fighting like hell against the instinct to pull the chute early, was certainly the right choice. It would have prolonged his descent to the point where he could have died from hypothermia or even asphyxiation. And uh, we're going to get into that part real quick. So put a pin in that, too. So, he just had to fall. In this cold, bleeding from nearly every orifice, and blind. Yeah, you heard me. As he entered the upper reaches of the thunderstorm, his visibility was reduced to near zero. And blindly, he kept falling and falling and falling until, quote, he began to worry that the barometric sensor and the automatic switch on his parachute had been damaged. Mm -hmm. Finally, he felt an upward tug on his harness as the parachute deployed. Though he couldn't see the parachute above him, Rankin tugged on the risers and was satisfied that, yes, it had deployed and inflated properly. End quote from Anders Clark. So, was this relief? Absolutely not. Unfucking believably my friends, Rankin was actually nowhere near 10,000 feet, and the barometric sensor was damaged. 
The chaotic storm conditions prematurely triggered the automatic switch, leaving Rankin in a scene right out of Dante's Inferno. And I'm not fucking exaggerating. With the parachute deployed, his body was caught in the updrafts and dragged thousands of feet back up into the sky before once again falling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This pure hell repeated over and over and over so many times that Rankin lost count and lost his lunch, to put it mildly. Quote, I'd see lightning. Oh boy, do I remember that lightning. I never exactly heard the thunder. I felt it. I remember falling through hail, and that worried me. I was afraid the hail would tear the chute. Sometimes I was falling through heavy water. I'd take a breath and breathe in a mouthful of water. I was blown up and down as much as 6,000 feet at a time, and it went on for a long time, like being on a very fast elevator with strong blasts of compressed air hitting you. At one point, I got seasick and heaved, he told Time Magazine. So, <laughs> let's, um... Let's take a minute. Let's take a minute because that was a lot. Um, mm -hmm. The man was falling through lightning, uh, being pelted with shards of ice. Uh, Shockwaves from thunder ripple rippled his body. And the air around him, this blows my fucking mind. The air around him was so saturated he had to hold his breath and selectively chose the optimal time to breathe because he had to in avoid inhaling water and avoid the very real possibility of drowning in the fucking sky. How was your day today? <laughs> I hope it was good. Um, the only upside to this literal shitstorm is that uh, they only last for X amount of time. It had finally begun to die down. Quote, at last, I realized I was getting warmer. The air was smooth and rain was falling on me. I figured I was down to 300 or 500 feet. I told myself, all I have to do now is make a good landing. End quote. Yes, my friends, Rankin was alive, beat to hell, <laughs> but alive, and his fucking parachute was intact. Yeah, he found himself descending into the forests of the North Carolina backcountry, which to me is, sounds just as dangerous as the shitstorm, but I digress. Uh, Rankin actually got tangled in a fucking tree upon his landing, but luckily uh, his helmet was still around his damn head, which protect, protected his skull against the impact. Um, frostbitten, concussed, stiff, and nauseous, Rankin freed himself from that last clusterfuck and checked his watch. 6.40 p.m. Yeah. He had been thrown about in a thunderstorm for 40 goddamn minutes and survived. Round of goddamn applause, man. That's just a bitch. Now, now he had to deal with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, making his way to a country road, quote, a dozen cars passed him as he stood there, wet, bloody, vomit-stained, and haggard, and waving feebly. Finally, a car slowed. Stop, a small boy cried to his father. There's a jet pilot standing in the road. The car took him to a country store, <laughs> where he collapsed on the floor while waiting for an ambulance to carry him to a hospital in Hoski, North Carolina somewhere in North Carolina, end quote, from Time Magazine. Now, Rankin recovered. He fucking recovered over the next few weeks and actually returned to duty. Uh, and of course, he wrote a book about this experience uh, in proper Marvel hero fashion. It's called The Man Who Rode Thunder. 
move the fuck over, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, <laughs> this, this guy. <laughs> so my friends, William Rankin, the man who fought in World War II, the Korean War, and is the only person to fall through a, thunderst- a thunderstorm and survive, uh, he went on to live a long, happy life, passing at the age of 88 back in 2009. Um, let, that, let that settle in, too. After the break, believe it or not, my friends, we are going to find ourselves in an even more dangerous situation. <laughs> the odds are truly not in our favor, but you know what? We're going to try it anyway. Let's head on back to a time when the most successful predators ever walked the earth. Could our little asses survive? Oh, God, this is so exciting. Please, stay tuned. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Jill Chacha here from Well, That's Interesting. And I am absolutely thrilled to tell you about Spotify for Podcasters. I use it. I love it. And it all started by downloading the free Spotify for Podcasters app, which has all the tools you need in one place to record and edit your masterpiece of a podcast. Spotify for Podcasters also distributes your show to all major platforms. So when you hit publish, your episodes will stream not only on Spotify, but I'm talking about the Apples, the Googles, Stitcher, Good Pods, the other ones. (laughs) You get the idea. And you can monetize your podcast with no minimum listenership required. You could also set up monthly subscriptions and record ads just like this one. So what are you waiting for? Download Spotify for Podcasters today and start changing the world. Oh, and please, stay interesting. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2, now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us, all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots, shots, shots! Now streaming. He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Who does that? Vacation Friends 2. Rated R. Now streaming only on Hulu. And we're back. We are so back. And my friends, if you thought falling through a thunderstorm for 40 minutes was a doozy of a pickle, just wait for this nightmare. (laughs) 
I am so, so excited about this. We're dusting off everyone's favorite segment. Let's read from a book, motherfucker. And the hypothetical situation we'll find ourselves in today comes to us from none other than the great author, Cody Cassidy. Uh, my friends, he's got a superb new book out called How to Survive History. And again, this is not a commercial. This is not sponsored. I just fucking love this book and you should get yourselves a copy. I'm fucking serious. <laughs> so today, we're going to thrust ourselves into a dire situation and the first how-to of How to Survive History, quote, let's say you want to visit the era when the most powerful predators in history attacked the largest land animals the planet has ever seen. You want to see 80-ton reptiles, carnivores with jaws comparable to a car shredder, and an animal the size of a giraffe take flight. End quote. Yes, my friends, if for some godforsaken reason we wanted this, this would mean we need to charge up the old time machine and dial it way the fuck back 70 million years to the Mesozoic era. And uh, the Earth, well... She looks way different from her profile photo. Uh, according to Cassidy, if we landed in North America, we'd, quote, feel the sticky heat of Lu the Louisiana bayous as far north as Montana, end quote. Not only would we experience that shocker, but the Rocky Mountains haven't formed yet, nor has the Sierra Nevada. And there's a fucking sea over all of what's now the Midwestern United States. Oh, and across the world... What's now India is just an island not yet having crashed into what's now Asia. Uh, heads up, grass is a new species. Quote, you'll see a few blades, but no grasslands. Only ferns, ficus, cycads, and ginkgos, along with large trees and dense forests. You'll also see the famous Tyrannosaurus rex. End quote. Huh, well, after shitting your pants, rightfully so, your brain will probably fart out a bunch of instant survival plans. Like, hey, hey, maybe you should just hide, stand still, climb one of those big trees, or maybe just pass out, just pass out and play dead. Well, get this, my horrified business goose. According to Cassidy's research, you might just have a shot at living by doing something completely insane, if you will. Quote, surprisingly, shockingly, Recent evidence suggests that you might be able to run from the most powerful predator to ever walk this planet. At least if you know how to use your biggest, your biggest advantage, your size. End quote. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Can you fucking believe it? Your two little scrawny-ass legs may be enough to outrun a grown T-Rex. And I know exactly... What you're picturing right now, that scene from Jurassic Park, the whole car chase? Well, we're about to get into why that could never happen. And it's not for the reason you think. And coincidentally, it's also the reason why we might survive. So let's get into it. Quote, a full-grown T-Rex was absurdly large and absurdly powerful. It had rows of teeth. It could push through Triceratops bone. It could toss human-sized chunks of meat 16 feet into the air with its jaws it was as tall as a giraffe, and at nine tons, heavy as an elephant, end quote. Okay, y'all, I know. We really, we just really need to let that sink in. A creature, the, the height of a giraffe, which is like 16 to 18 feet tall, and weighing as much as a grown-ass elephant, with all the teeth. Oh, and all the fucking muscle. 
Get this, quote, T-Rex had proportionally more muscles devoted to its movement than nearly any animal that's ever lived, says Eric Snively, a biologist at Oklahoma State University who studies the biomechanics of dinosaurs. And yet, if you see one, you should only be mildly concerned because a T-Rex couldn't run. End quote. Mic drop. You fucking heard that excerpt. That's right. A T-Rex couldn't run. A grown T-Rex could not run. Cassidy goes on to interview uh, John Hutchinson, lead author of a paper with the fabulously bereft title, Tyrannosaurus was not a fast runner, and snagged this answer after asking what a T-Rex's performance in a race would look like. Quote, a short distance jog is about the best we'd expect, and not with a fast start either. End quote. Yeah, yeah. So, my brilliant and lucky business goose, I bet you're thinking, holy shit, I bet this is because the fucker is just too big to run. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's look at the fucking math. Quote, bone strength only squares as volume cubes. The result is that as an animal increases in size, it requires proportionally more muscle and leg bone to stand, move, and run. Beyond a certain size, running becomes physically impossible, which is why giants and King Kong only exist in fairy tales. For all their muscular bulk, the T-Rex's leg bones would have shattered under anything more than the stress of a brisk walk. Judging by its mass, muscle, and bone, Snively doesn't believe an adult T-Rex could have moved faster than 12 or 13 miles per hour. Another mic drop, end quote. That's like, that's it. Yeah. So, my relieved business goose, please give yourself a round of applause. We just survived an encounter with a grown T-Rex by basically running for our lives. And you looked great the whole, the entire time, by the way. You looked amazing. I've never seen anyone run in a panic with such elegance. Now, that's the good news. From here on out, the rest of the show will go thusly. Um, some bad news, followed by some good news, and then more bad news. R- really, really bad. <clears throat> Here's why. Quote, Of course, the T-Rex would hardly be your only concern in the Mesozoic era. Numerous other meat-eating dinos of various sizes might take an interest in snacking on you. Once again, whether you can outrun them or not depends on their weight, end quote. Ha. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Oh, crap. (laughs) Are we dealing with, like, these lean motherfuckers? And the answer is yes. But you'll want to know why we'll probably die this way, at the very least, right? I mean, you'll want to know just how many dinosaurs are capable of making us such an easy fucking meal. You should at least know that. So, back in ye olde 2017... The aptly named biologist Miriam Hurt and friends answered the Tom Cruisiest question of all time. Is there an optimal size for speed? And yes, yes, there is. Um, And the way they answered this question is the most obsessive, compulsive thing um, I've ever seen. Quote, when Hurt plotted the weight and speed of every running, swimming, and flying animal on Earth, she found that, regardless of the mode of movement, size and speed follow a 
parabolic curve. <laughs> Both the smallest and the largest animals are the slowest. She concluded that if you were designing an animal for speed, it should weigh approximately 200 pounds. End quote. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Yikes. Hurt suggests anything larger than 6,000 pounds, we could possibly outrun. Um, if you're in shape, so quit vaping. It'll help in this situation. But, big ass, but. This means we need to look we need to keep a lookout for like mid-sized dinosaurs. And there's a lot of them that weigh less than 6,000 pounds. So we need a plan. Y'all, we need a plan. And uh, lucky for us, animals today can help us figure one out. Alan Wilson, a professor at the Royal Veterinary College at the University of London, somehow attached accelerometers to cheetahs, impalas, lions, and zebras, and found this shit out. <laughs> Get this. Quote, His measurements suggest the cheetah is capable of running at least 53 miles per hour, while its prey, the impala, tops out at a mere 40. Likewise, the lion can reach 46 miles per hour. Y'all, that's too fast. I can't. While the zebra can only run 31 miles per hour. Despite their significant speed deficit, both the impala and zebra successfully escape in two out of every three pursuits, end quote. But yeah, yeah. And my friends, that's because them animals, they know how to run. They run like smart, if you will. <laughs> when Wilson put the acceleration data and the athletic performance of both predator and prey into a computer model and ran simulations, he saw some amazing shit, and came up with a motherfucking plan. Quote, He found two tactics that those being chased should employ. First, when the dino begins chasing you but is still far away, change course frequently but do not decelerate. Second, when the predator draws within two or three strides, rapidly decelerate, turn sharply, and then accelerate. Your goal is to buy time. And you have an endurance advantage. An endurance advantage. Ooh, that's hard to say. <laughs> Recent studies suggest dinosaur species may have possessed remarkable endurance for their size, but your springy hips, stretchy Achilles tendons, and efficient cooling systems make you one of the greatest endurance runners nature has ever created. Ooh la la. The longer you race, the longer, the longer your race, the greater your chances. End quote. Hmm. So give yourself another round of applause, my sexy business goose. What a description. And what great advice. Except, except I said this episode will end with some very bad, very bad, not good news. Despite that advice, there's probably very little chance in hell we'd survive an encounter with possibly the greatest land predator of all time. The T-Rex. Uh, uh, I, I, I can hear you from here. I can hear you. I can hear you. I can hear you saying, didn't you just say their legs would shatter? What the fuck? What the fuck are you talking about? I thought we got away. Well, my friends, the T-Rex existed as a species for 1.2 to 3.6 million years, which could mean they went on for 66,000 to 188,000 generations. It's <laughs> a lot. And the way they did this, 
how they became so successful? Roving packs of teenagers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, you heard me. That's right. A 14-year-old T-Rex was the most dangerous thing in the world at the time. Quote, Unlike most animals, a T-Rex is not the fastest as an adult. Instead, it reaches its peak speed in its youth before it's slowed by its immense bulk. A teenage T-Rex runs an estimated 33 miles per hour because it weighs a relatively slim 2,000 pounds and yet possesses jaws strong enough to tear through your bones. A young T-Rex is more likely to do this as well because unlike an adult, which hunts 7,000-pound duck-billed dinosaurs and five-ton triceratops, a teenage T-Rex probably eats animals of your size. End quote. Ugh. So, my friends, Cassidy's only advice here is to hide. And it better be a really great place, too, because these fuckers were probably smart. According to science.org, a T-Rex may have had an EQ of about 2.4, compared with 3.1 for a German Shepherd. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good and bad for us. And, um... You know what else? Honestly, honestly, I can't think of a more relatable dinosaur than the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, as a teen, it's a dangerous creature that puts the fear of God into everything, only to grow into a chonky adult that has basically given up on life. (laughs) Oh man, I feel you, T-Rex. And I, I feel the dog barking behind me. That's my neighbor's dog. Well, thank you for listening rating, subscribing, telling your friends about the man who fell through a thunderstorm and survived. Uh, Tell them about the running techniques. The running tech, just text them without context about the running techniques. And thank you for three amazing fucking years. I just, I'm speechless. The dog is not speechless. (laughs) So please stay interesting.